1209, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, coming up a little bit later in the program, it is an interesting conversation. Um, there is a there's a documentary out called Tom and Time, which focuses on Tom Brady. And there, there's a scene in it where he has an interaction with his 11-year-old son. I'm going to talk about it a little bit later on, but if you would like to see the clip um, that is generating so much response, you can text the word KISS, K-I-S-S, to 414-799-1620, 414-799-1620, which is, of course, the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, text the word KISS, and I'll send you a link to the, the story and the you, you'll be able to at least watch that that segment of the documentary that's generating all the conversation. We'll probably talk about that either later in this hour or probably at the start of the one o'clock hour. But if you text me the word "kiss" K I S S, I will share the controversial, or at least in the minds of some people, controversial film clip involving Tom Brady. All right, we start off today's show like we start off every show. Three big things. Story number one: It is happening again. There is. A high school, Indian Trail High School and Academy in Kenosha, which is closed for the day. What happened was that um, about 9.30 or 10 o'clock last night, um, a a parent um, saw something on Snapchat and called the school district. The school district became aware of that. They evaluated that, and about 4 a.m. this morning, they made the uh, decision to cancel school. Um, and as a result, the, you know, they put it out. It's all over the news today. You had police officers and police cars that were outside the high school this morning. So in case anybody was trying to get there, parents who might not have gotten the word, who wanted to drop off their kids, they were not allowed to do this. Now, I, I'm looking at what was posted on Snapchat which generated this response in the first place. And again, it's on Snapchat, which is one of the social media outlets that's there. Um, The the portion that has been made public, at least that I have, says um, somebody has texted, has written, I'm shooting shooting up it uh, tomorrow. I'm shooting up ITA tomorrow. Um, And then a series of, you know, 100s underneath it. And then the next response, um, me, go ahead. I don't care who I hit. I'm sick of it. I've reached my breaking point. Um, and that, that's, that's what there is. Parent sees this on Snapchat. Again, calls the district. Um, this is 11 o'clock last night. The district get the police involved. Apparently, I'm, I'm sure that there was some um, sleepless nights going on in connection with district administrators. And they make the decision today that they are going to cancel school. So let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Interestingly, in some of the news reports I saw about this, there's apparently a middle school right around the corner. That middle school is not closed. Kenosha officials are saying to the extent that they're, this is a, a threat, it's directed at the high school. But on one of the reports I saw that there were some parents who were making the decision that, that they weren't even going to allow their kids to go to the middle school, even though the middle school was open. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Kenosha Police investigating. I'm sure the Sheriff's Department is going to be investigating. But the school was closed today. Here is my question. 
Was this an overreaction? Is this a situation where better safe than sorry? Look, we know what this is going to turn out to be. This is going to turn out to be some latchkey kid who's gone tragically wrong, who's posted this kind of stuff, who thinks it's funny or doesn't think it was going to get any sort of attention at all, because the people who make real threats well, they don't, they don't go on Snapchat and talk about it. They just show up. So you, you know 99.9999999999% of the time that this is just going to be, again, not a hoax necessarily, but just maybe that's not the right word, just somebody venting and that there's nothing to it. Did the school officials overreact by closing school? Should they have gone ahead and simply... Again, increased school security, perhaps, had a couple of police officers there, um, but gone ahead with school. Was it the right decision to close school? And if you're not able to get to the bottom of this by, say, 4 o'clock this afternoon, do you close school tomorrow? If you're not able to figure out who was doing this by 4 o'clock tomorrow, do you close school next week? Where do you draw the line? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1214, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Twelve seventeen, Jeff Wagner, WPMJ. All right, high school in Kenosha is closed. What happened, if you're just tuning in, is last night, sometime between 9.30 and 10, a parent noticed something that was posted on Snapchat. Somebody's writing, I'm shooting it up tomorrow. Go ahead. I don't care who I hit. I'm sick of it. I've reached my breaking point. Um, the parent alerts district officials. District officials look at it, make the decision that they are closing school today and don't know if they're going to have school open tomorrow. Was this an overreaction? 414-799-1620. Could you have, I don't know, solved this problem not without closing school? Let's start with Wyatt in Sheboygan. Wyatt, you're first. Hello. Hey, yeah, I do believe it is warranted with what they did so that they do get all the students out and whatnot so that the police as well as school administrators can have a better control on it as well as getting to that student that did say those alarming things before he acted out. What if they're not able to identify the student today? Do you close it tomorrow? In my opinion, I would until you do identify the student just to prevent other people from getting shot up and whatnot. Okay, so if they're not able to figure out who did this by, say, the weekend, you you would close school next week, too? See, that's a tricky thing because now you're taking it out on the students and they're missing time and whatnot, but you're also putting them at risk because you still haven't identified the student. Okay, well, right, but that's that's the I guess that's the issue. So you you wouldn't argue that, for example, if you can't find who posted this on Snapchat, you wouldn't say that you you close school all semester, would you? No, I would not. Definitely not all semester, but I would buff up security in that school so that the students can get back to learning and whatnot while well, feeling safe. Right. No, thanks for calling, see, Wyatt. And I and see, I, I guess I'm, I'm with you on that last one, and, and this is. This is why I think that there needs to be a consistent reaction to this type of stuff. I, I understand because I get the texts, oh, well, well, what happens if something really happened Then everybody would feel bad? A- absolutely. A- absolutely. Um, but I guess the question becomes, you know, can you, can you deal with this without having to close school? 
can you deal with this by say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have an added police presence at the school. We're going to um, go through book bags or things like that. I mean, the truth is, my guess is whenever this particular high school, Indian Trail High School and Academy in Kenosha, opens back up, it's going to be the safest school in the state of Wisconsin because people are going to be on alert. I mean, it's I, here, here's my problem. I understand the better safe than sorry thing. I also understand that in some cases, administrators are kind of in a trick box because what happens is when, when parents hear about this, parents say, well, I don't care if the school is open or not. I'm not going to send my kid. And so effectively, the school ends up closing down. If 50% of the parents say, well, I don't want my kid to be unsafe. At the same time, I think you have to be, and I've been arguing this for the longest time, very, very careful about giving in to the, the kook element. Um, and that is, all right, by the kook element, I mean that those kooks that are out there, you know, the, the latchkey kid, the, the people that are, are trying to scare folks. And by closing down the school, you get, you give them <clears throat> what it is that they wanted. We see this with bomb threats once the weather gets a little nicer. I mean, every spring, it seems to me you have a half dozen schools that end up getting closed because of this. Um, here's a text. With the threat to Indian trails, you have to treat it as credible because if you did not and some kid dies in a shot-up school, it's on the district. I See, I understand you have to treat it as a credible threat, but my question becomes – does that mean that you have to close the school, and for how long? Or can you accomplish this by saying, all right, we're going to have an extra police presence here. You know, there's going to be more police that are going to be around. We're going to have security people that are going to be around. But we're not going to give in, and we're not going to close the school. Now, the rest of the text goes on to say what needs to happen is when they find the kid, you throw the book at them. Don't be soft for punishment. Put them in jail for something like that. Now, I agree with that completely. Now, the Kenosha School District is making a big deal about the fact that there's a new state law which allows people who do this to be charged as felons and things like that. Yeah, I'm all in favor of that. But how often does that actually happen? When you find out, and, you know, it's inevitably, it's always the same. It's a situation where you've got some kid who's going to say, well, I just, I was just mad at something or other, and I was, or I I thought this would be funny or whatever, and there's almost never any sort of significant consequences. So I agree with the overall notion that you want to punish somebody. Uh, Of course, when you catch that person, you have to, um, you have to hold them accountable. My only point is, rather than, automatically saying okay we're going to close we're going to close the school could the plan be no we're going to have school we're going to have an increased police presence be prepared to be inconvenienced because we're going to search book bags and things like that while we continue the investigation um i think schools would be much better off if that was their plan, if the immediate result and response to these type of things was, all right, we're going to we're not going to give in to, you know, the, these crazies that are out there. We are going to we're going to treat it as a credible threat, but we're going to continue to have school. We're not going to be bullied into shutting down school. We will enhance security, but we're not going to give in. Now, that's a tough reaction for administrators to take, and most parents would say, well, I'm not going to send the kids there anyways. But I think we need to have a sea change as to how we deal with this stuff because this silliness goes on and on and on. And I also agree with absolutely everybody who's saying when they catch the person that did it, you treat them, well, you, you charge them with making a terrorist threat. 
because there's a lot of people whose lives were disrupted. There's a lot of taxpayer money that was flushed down the you-know-where as a result of this, and there needs to be accountability. All right, coming up next, big story number two, the freeway is back in the news. Stick around. It's 1223. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you want to see a portion of the video, this documentary involving Tom Brady and his family uh, that's generating so much controversy and interaction between Brady and his 11-year-old son, we're going to be talking about it at the start of the 1 o'clock hour. You can text me the word KISS, K-I-S-S, to 414-799-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, and I'll send you a link to that. And we're, we're going to discuss some of the thoughts that people have about this. Well, surprise follows surprise. Chris Abley has reached into his pants pocket, and suddenly he's found the money. So those stories we've been hearing about how you're going to have to eliminate these bus routes and how terrible it's going to be, well, never mind about that. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, apparently, again, we're pleading poverty. This is one of these deals. Abley's saying, hey, look, I, I didn't get my $60 wheel tax. I mean, I, I only got $30. And so as a result, you know, the bus company, we're going to have to cut out all these different bus routes, and we're going to have to eliminate this bus route that runs between the MATC campus downtown and the one out in Mequon and how terrible this is going to be. And I remember we have Jan phone lines because people got what the easy answer to this problem was which is if there's so many people that need to travel between the MATC campus downtown and the one in Mequon and vice versa, maybe that's where MATC should just run the shuttle back and forth, and then you solve the entire problem. Well, you figured that out. But anyhow, what Abley was all about is, again, this tactic that so many, many politicians use, which is to try to scare you. If you don't raise your taxes, if you don't approve this referendum, then the sky is going to fall. Racine Unified School District used to be great at that. They kept asking for referendum after referendum to increase their spending. And the voters in Racine kept saying no until they devised the strategy. All right, here's what we're going to do. If you don't give us our money, It's not that we're going to eliminate a bunch of mid-level bureaucrats who make $125,000 a year. We're going to eliminate all sports. That's what we're going to do. And then, of course, you try to scare people. And if you're good enough at it, people give in. Well, in Abley's case, it was, we're going to eliminate all these bus routes. It's going to be gone. I didn't get the money I, I wanted, so now they're going to be gone. And he didn't get the reaction that he wanted from the county board, which wasn't to immediately just roll over on their back and say, all right, you know, here, um, we'll, we'll be fine. We'll give you the money. Don't eliminate these bus routes. So what's happened now? What's the follow-up story? It, it is a miracle. It is a miracle before Easter. The Milwaukee County Transit System, they don't have to eliminate those nine bus routes. Here's the story. A projected surplus in the Milwaukee County Transit System's 2018 budget will be used to prevent the elimination of nine bus routes previously tagged for elimination this year, County Executive Chris Abley said Wednesday. The surplus of $481,000 from higher-than-expected county vehicle registration fee revenue and around $216,500 in other budget savings will be used to fully fund the nine routes for the remainder of this year. In other words, all this stuff about how we're going to have to eliminate these bus routes and stuff, it was a load of hooey. First of all, I don't believe 
that they didn't know they had this money in the first place. You will never, ever, ever convince me that, gee, this money, this $400,000, this almost half a million dollars has suddenly just mysteriously appeared. Of course they knew this money was around, but they didn't want to use it for that. They wanted to scare you into giving them more of your tax dollars. But once that did not work, well... Now the money has mysteriously been found. Gee, I found it. It's great. It's great. The truth is this was there all the time. And this is my point when you have these politicians who go out and start talking about we need to raise your taxes, we need to raise your taxes. Well, first, make sure you haven't cut everything that you need to cut. And make sure you don't have half a million dollars in surplus money lying around. This was created solely by the county executive for the purpose of trying to scare people into raising revenue. It wasn't necessary, and it has now been exposed. So Chris Abley, he, he looks, I guess, like the savior, saying, oh, I found the money to get rid of the, to save these nine bus routes. Well, they were they should have never been in the on the chopping block in the first place if they were necessary. 1236, Jeff Wettner, WTMJ. Jerry Kramer's next and perhaps last chance for the Pro Football Hall of Fame comes up this weekend. Greg Matzik says it's now or never for the former Packer. He dives in at 625 on Sports Central. Um, in my opinion, and this is in partly partly it's affected by the fact that my my best friend Evan has been writing letters on Jerry Kramer's behalf for years. It is just an incredible. When you look at the people who are in the Hall of Fame, uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, it is an injustice that Jerry Kramer, who you know arguably one of the top linemen of the Packers' glory years, remains on the outskirts. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why he's on the out. Some people say too many Packers in the Hall of Fame. Some people were upset because he wrote one of the first kind of football tell-alls, his instant replay, which chronicled the the last Lombardi team, the 1967 Packers, and some people got upset because it was kind of a warts-and-all presentation. And, candidly, um, Jerry Kramer is a bit of a self-promoter from time to time, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't deserve to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And Greg is right, it's now or never. We find out Saturday night whether he's going to get in, and he certainly deserves that. All right. Big story number two, press conference today held with um, State Senator Alberta Darling, State Representative Joe Sanfilippo, um, who was on earlier today on WTMJ with Steve Scafidi, trying to revive the East-West I-94 project. Now, let's review the bidding for people who, who haven't been following this. Um we we have massive freeway appro- work that's going on now. You have the I-94 stretch between Milwaukee County and the state line, which is being reworked. And, of course, now that Foxconn is coming in, that is ever more important. You've got the zoo interchange around here, which is extremely important. And it seems like that construction has been going on forever and ever. And the third part of freeway construction around here was supposed to be the area between the Marquette Interchange and the Zoo Interchange, that, that I-94 corridor. If you have ever traveled that corridor when the weather has been bad or when there has been a lot of traffic or when there has been a collision, you know that that backs up quickly. The argument that has been made and is a very, very convincing argument to me is that it, it makes no sense to do all these freeway improvements um, on the Northwest Corridor and to do all these freeway improvements around the Marquette Interchange, but then still to have 
the, the outdated lanes on I-94 between the zoo and between the Marquette because it's just kind of – it's like a choke point. I mean, think of it. You've got bit one really wide pipe funneling water. Then all of a sudden it narrows, and then it expands again. Well, you know there's going to be backups. There's going to be congestion. There's going to be clogging. And, and so that's always been the argument. There was federal money available for this, but we've been having this ongoing battle about the transportation budget. And what ended up happening is Governor Walker kind of threw up his hands because he, he I think everybody is on board with finishing the zoo. Clearly, most people are on board with the north-south improvements. But the big problem is you have the city of Milwaukee, particularly in the form of Mayor Tom Barrett, who is anti-car, who's anti-freeway, um, who has never been on board with this project. On top of it, you have various groups who've been threatening lawsuits to try to block the, the project. And what happened was Governor Walker looked at all this and said, well, Look, I we've got we've got to pick and choose with where we are in the transportation budget now. And if we go ahead and try to proceed with this project, what's going to happen is we're going to be buying ourselves lawsuits. We're going to be spinning our wheels and we're going to be tied up in court for years. On top of that, the mayor of the city of Milwaukee doesn't want this. So Walker essentially kind of said, why continue to bang my head into a, a brick wall? Why not? Just let's. Let's put this one on the shelf, and then let's kind of move forward with the stuff that's going to be not controversial. All right, so today you've got Alberta Darling, you've got Joe Sanfilippo and other people who are saying, we want to try to bring this back. We want to revive it. Um, you know, We want to get the project started. We want to put $25 million towards it. We want to see if we can you know, get the federal funding going back. It's too important a stretch given everything that's going on. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here, here's how I, I see this. I think Senator Darling, Representative Joe Sanfilippo, and everybody else is right. In an ideal world, this this would be an important project to do. Unfortunately, politics is the art of the possible. And as long as Tom Barrett is the mayor, and as long as the Common Council isn't on board, and as long as you don't have people around here who are willing to stand up and fight the environmentalists, going ahead and spending money on this project, which is mostly at this point in time probably going to be going to lawyers to fight the lawsuits, to me, that doesn't make any sense. Should this be done? Yes. No question about it. No question about it. It is important, again, to have that space. But the reality is, I just don't think there's the political will around here as long as Barrett is mayor. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we need to expand this freeway? Yes, we do. Can it be done? Should Governor Walker start putting this back on the table now? I just think it's going to be a waste of time. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What should we do? Should we invest money right now in this project without any certainty at all that it's going to even be able to be started in any meaningful fashion for the next several years? Or should we just say, let's spend the money we have doing other projects that are less controversial and then deal with this whenever? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. It's 1242. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Area hospitals and clinics are facing a shortage of IV bags. John Mercure takes a look at how that might impact your next visit. That's in the Wisconsin's Afternoon News section of the WTMJ Mobile Podcast Network. All right. 
We know what the New Year's means, New Year's resolutions. Whether it's eating right or exercising more, you want to change for the better. Well, you know what helped me change for the better? Sleeping well. I know, I know you're thinking, Jeff, is this about my pillow? Well, yeah, the truth is it is because... You can't get healthier unless you get a good night's sleep, and that's the type of sleep that my pillow gives you. For the new year, this is only for a couple more days, though, my pillow is extending their best offer ever. Buy one my pillow, get one absolutely free. Go to mypillow.com. You need to use the promo code Wagner. So whether you're a New Year's resolutioner or you just want that quality sleep that has you feeling like a new person the next morning, take advantage of this offer. By the way, my pillow makes a great Valentine's Day gift as well. Plus, it's 100% machine washable and dryable. It comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. So again. Don't delay before this offer goes away. Go to MyPillow.com. Click on the buy one, get one free special. Use the promo code Wagner or call 800-953-4163. Use the same promo code to get a great deal on a MyPillow. You will start sleeping better. I'd be surprised if you don't. 1244, Jeff Wagner. It's 1245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You heard the radio ad for Michael Skranek, who's the Sauk County judge who's running for state Supreme Court. This this is going to be a, a real interesting race. Right now, it's a three-way primary. As I was talking about yesterday, the, on the state Supreme Court, um, there is a five-to-two majority for a judicial conservative block. And if it wasn't for that judicial conservative block, if you had activist liberal judges, say, from Dane County, what would have happened is we wouldn't have had Act 10. Um, I, I think a lot of the reforms that you've seen that have made the state a lot better over the last five, six, seven years would would have been blocked by activist judges who, who didn't like it. Um, Michael Gableman, who is a conservative justice on the Supreme Court, is retiring. So there's three people running against him There there's uh, to replace him. You've got Michael Skrenick who is Sauk County judge, he would be the judicial conservative in the race. Conventional wisdom has him advancing through the February 20th primary into the general election early April. There are two other candidates who are running, who are liberals. But it's been interesting the way this has all developed. One is a Madison attorney named Tim Burns, who is really, really far to the left. And he's he's been running a campaign like I don't know any judicial candidate has ever run before. He, he's been actively going around talking about how elect him. More, normally candidates say, hey, I'm not going to tell you how I rule on cases and things like that. He's been actively going around saying, look, I, I, I put me on the bench and I will not vote to support these things that Scott Walker, you know, did. I would have done this. I would have done that. He's staking himself out to the far left. The other candidate is a liberal, but I would have thought initially a less liberal candidate, Rebecca Dallet, who is a Milwaukee County judge. She is a liberal. And I think in the beginning of the campaign, what happened was she tried to present herself as kind of a more left of left of the conservative judge, but not kind of way out there where Tim Burns is. And I don't know if the campaign has polling or what, but over the last couple of weeks, Dallet has been moving herself far left and, and again, kind of running the type of campaign that the people haven't seen before when it comes to judicial campaigns. Best evidence of this is she launched an, an ad this week. Now she's running for the state Supreme Court, right? Who was featured in the ad? Donald Trump. 
Um, she she runs this ad that you know has grainy footage of Trump. You know the way those attack ads run and um, headlines about his actions on Obamacare and a Great Lake project. And she says he's attacked our civil rights and our values. And then the ad cuts the Dalit and he says that she'll protect him. So I mean, this is. I understand that there's politics involved in Supreme Court races, but this is about as overt as you've seen. And again, I don't think it was her strategy, but I think she's afraid that she's getting outmaneuvered on the left and that Burns is ahead. Matter of fact, I, I've been talking to people in Madison, and I keep saying, well, you know, Rebecca Dowell's going to win, right? And they keep saying, well, no, you don't understand what's going on outstate, that the liberals are going to pretty much unite behind Burns, which I find hard to believe. But Maybe there's something to it because, like I say, she's moving hard, hard left, which is not where she was in the beginning of the campaign. The problem she's having is if she's going to move hard left to be one of the two that come through the primary, then, you know, how do you go back? I mean, can you can you go back and do you seed any sort of effort at trying to be in the middle ground? So it's an interesting strategy that's going on there. But she's coming out again. Donald Trump, you're running for the state Supreme Court and you're running ads that you're going to run against the president of the United States, essentially. Wow. It is an interesting strategy. Some would say it's panic. Maybe it's just shrewdness. But the farther left you go, it's going to be tough, I think, for her to come back into the mainstream. But uh, I guess before you can come back into the mainstream in the general election, you got to get through the primary. And apparently she must have some concerns about her willingness and ability to get through the primary. All right. Big story number two. We've been talking about this. The Republican lawmakers today trying to urge the governor to revisit the whole idea of the East-West project. Justin says, we need this widening ASAP, plus someday soon I-43 north to Port Washington absolutely needs four lanes throughout Milwaukee County. Yeah, instead of getting into that traffic jam you get by Bayshore. The time to start now, especially if the Trump infrastructure initiatives will help us get federal funding. That, I think, is, is the key. I think that First of all, you need to wait to see what's going to happen with these infrastructure initiatives. If there is the possibility of federal money for this project, I think the state would be foolish to pass it up. But having said that, absent that and absent a substantial federal commitment, um, this is a battle that's tough to fight, again, because Tom Barrett loves his trolley. Tom Barrett doesn't like cars. Tom Barrett wants to try to force you out of your trolley, whether it's the high-speed bus lanes that are going to take off, take away lanes of traffic, making it difficult to drive, or whether it's going to be the trolley, which, again, is going to make it difficult to drive in downtown Milwaukee. He wants you out of your cars. So the problem becomes, if the mayor's not on board with this, can you fight this battle? Is it a battle worth fighting? Not yet. But maybe, maybe, maybe once we see where federal funding lies. All right, big story number three. Speaking of Tom Barrett, he's been having a rough couple days. Does he make it through the rest of his term? Or maybe is it time for him to just throw up his hands and say, I'm done. I'm going to declare victory. I'm going home. Stick around. It's 1252. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1254. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Coming up uh, in about 10 minutes or so. It's a controversial, there's an aspect of a documentary that they're putting out about Tom Brady, who's the Patriots quarterback, 
um, involving some interaction between him and his 11-year-old son. If you want to see the clip of it, you can text me the word KISS, K-I-S-S, to 414-799-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, we're going to talk about it at the start of the 1 o'clock hour of the program. It's just, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. I'll describe it, so if you don't see the video, you'll know what we're talking about, but um, this is one where pictures sometimes are worth a thousand words. The Bucks look to make it five in a row in the Twin Cities as they take on the Minnesota Timberwolves. Ted Davis begins coverage of this border battle at 640 night here on WTMJ. A number of months ago, I, I talked about how, in my opinion, it was time for Ed Flynn to leave, the Milwaukee police chief. And it's because after a certain period of time, there, there is a there's a limited shelf life that big city police chiefs have. Because what ends up happening is a lot of times, through no fault of their own, the problems they face are insurmountable. And they come in, and they've got all these great ideas, and then what happens is, you know, they roll stuff out, and then maybe it works for a little while, and then it stops working. Um, maybe they have setbacks, and they end up having to, I don't know, shift policies or whatever. But, I mean, I've been arguing for the longest time that it was time for Ed Flynn to go. And that's not saying that he was a bad guy, but I think what ended up happening is I, I think he kind of wore out his welcome. He, he either was not able to implement his initiatives or the initiatives didn't work. Um, he, I think, became sort of... I think for a variety of reasons, he became very, very political and essentially um, ended up being a, a puppet of the mayor. Now, I understand some people don't like to hear that, but I, that's what I thought. I thought I thought if, if Flynn had not done some of the things he had done early in his uh, early in his tenure, it would have made the last five or six years of his tenure different. Sometimes people just wear out their welcome. If you want to take another example, David Clark. I think David Clark wore out his welcome. I think David Clark was a breath of fresh air the first several years he was here. And then what happened is he either started believing his own publicity, you got tired with the job or whatever, and I think lost sight of what he should have been doing the last several years. All right. Mayor Tom Barrett. And, and, I, and I say this sincerely. This is big story number three. Here, here is the question. I think if you ask me, don't ask me whether he's going to run again in, what, 2020. Ask me whether or not he stays through the end of his term. And I will tell you, I think it's 6-5 Pick'em. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, it's it's not a good time for, to be the mayor. And again, this is another thing, just like being an urban police chief, um, the, the days of these mayors who come in and your, 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 your Henry Myers of the world that stay forever, those are starting to go by the wayside. Tom Barrett's been in office for a long time, and I think you see a lot of the same cracks that you saw um, with, with other mayors when it's been time for them to go. I mean, right now, the city of Milwaukee has a ton of issues. No matter what the mayor says about the city being safe, the reality is crime is out of control. What were the numbers over like 400, uh, 400 car thefts in January alone? This, le- this lead in the water thing is a huge scandal, and it's not going to go away. Matter of fact, my prediction, it's only going to get worse. So you've got that. You've got things like what happened last week with the Bucks player and, um, you know, were, was there – what ha- that whole story and the no charges, 
I still think something really stinks about that entire thing. And whether it leads to the mayor's office or not, I don't know. You've got the unpopular trolley that's going on. I think you look at all these different things and you start to wonder, all right, is Tom Barrett the guy at this point to lead the city moving forward or do you end up needing a change? Plus, you've already got the long knives out there. You've got people who are already declared that they're running against him and the election's not for a few years. Again, if you were to ask me, does Tom Barrett make it to the end of this term? My advice would be, I wouldn't go. I, I wouldn't give long odds one way or the other. Like I say, I think it's six five. Pick him. I wouldn't be surprised. Hey, that trolley starts running. Barrett declares victory and gets out of Dodge before that goes bad. Like we all know, it's going to twelve fifty nine. This is Jeff Wagner. If you want to see what we're we'll talking about next, text me the word kiss. I'll send you the story four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. It's twelve fifty nine. One hundred nine, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Well, all right. Mark the tape on this one. The county board steps up and slaps down the Chris Abley stunt um, again. We, as we were talking about earlier, you know, Chris Abley very, very unhappy that he didn't get his sixty dollars wheel tax. He only got $30, but he wanted a $60 wheel tax. He also wants paid parking in the parks. That one, that one, I understand that it's not going over very well. But from what I'm being told, there's still efforts that regardless of what the public says, they're prepared to stick it to us. And I think, how stupid could it be to take, for example, a success story like some of the beer gardens that we have, like Esterbrook Park, right by where I'm sitting, and put parking meters in there? And, of course, the insanity of the parking meters is that the county's not even going – the county wants to raise $1.6 million. So they're going to hire a private firm. And they're going to pay the private. The private firm is probably going to generate like $16 million in parking revenue and kick back 10%. So what we're really doing is we're going to hire some private contractor. I will be curious to see how many donations that private contractor, whoever it is, makes to county board members and to the county executive. And then, so 90% of what we pay to park is going to go to enrich the pockets of some parking contractor and only a small portion goes to help the parks. This is a bad idea on so many levels, but I'm being told that that might go ahead and happen. But anyhow, the other thing that Abley was talking about doing is if I don't get this money, I'm going to do all these cuts. When the last hour, um, he ended up after talking about having to cut nine bus routes, mysteriously, we, we found, you know, half a million dollars in surplus in the transportation budget, so these routes get to stay. Oh, what a shock. All of a sudden, this money is there. One of the other harebrained ideas he had was to close the Schultz Aquatic Center. The Schultz Aquatic Center is really, it's a, it's a big swimming pool in, um, on Hampton and, and Green Bay. It's in Lincoln Park. And it's really, it's one of only two public pools that you have in that area. It is very, very heavily used during the summer. On top of it, it also happens to be in the district of County Board Chairman Theodore Lipscomb. And Lipscomb and Abley are at at loggerheads, okay? So Abley decides, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut this, I'm going to close this park. And it has the benefit of not only, quote-unquote, saving money, but also of sticking it to Theo Lipscomb. And that's what this was all about. Well, people, you know, rose up. People said, no, no, this is horrible. Abley didn't want to hear that. The park's closing. Today, the uh, county board voted 16 to 1, and that is a veto-proof majority to uh, keep 
keep that pool open. And they're going to do it by imposing a moratorium on most county employee travel this year. All right. So in other words, saying, you know, you don't you don't need to send these like bureaucrats, I don't know, to the Wisconsin Dells for a conference. We're just going to save that money and we're going to use it to keep the parks open. And again, it's a 16 to one veto proof majority. So assuming nobody bails, that means this uh, again, it's another one of these examples where we were able to find money to do something without giving the county executive Milwaukee, the major tax increases that he wants. So it appears that the uh, pool will stay open, and I think that's a very good thing. All right. I, I've been talking about this all day. Um, it's – and, again, if you if you want to see it, um, there's a clip from this documentary. You can text me the word KISS, K-I-S-S, 414-799-1620. It's a documentary that, that's airing on on Amazon – right now um, on their their streaming service. Oh, it's part of Facebook. It's their Facebook docu-series, and you, you can access it. It's called Tom versus Time. The Tom is Tom Brady, and, it, you know, it talks about his football career, and it talks about the things he does to con- continue playing at the age that he's playing. There is a scene, and I, I will, I've watched it. I will describe this to you, and then we'll get reaction. There's a scene in this documentary that shows him he's, he's getting a massage. He's apparently in his house, and he's laying on this massage table, and there's a guy that's, like, rubbing his left arm. Um, his 11-year-old son, like, pops his head into the room and says, Hey, Dad, can I check my fantasy football standings? Um, you know, oh, hello, I was wondering if I could check my fantasy football standings. And Tom Brady says, Well, what do I get? And then the kid leans in and kisses kisses. Brady, who's like laying face up on this like massage table, and the kid gives him a peck. I, I don't think it's it. It looks like it might be on the lips, but it's it might be you know on the area between your top lip and your nose. You know, he reaches down and gives him a, a peck, and then the kid turns around and is starting to you know leave the room. At which point in time, the massage therapist who's working on his shoulder says, uh, you know, Jack, Jack's the kid, everything comes with a cost, bud. And then Tom says, yeah, that was like a peck. At which point in time, Jack returns, leans over, and kisses his father on the mouth for a, a second time. And it, it's not a peck. I mean, it's it's a kiss. Um on the lips, or at least it appears to me looking at it, it's a kiss on the lips. And, you know, and it and it lasts for, well, it's not just a peck. Now, this has generated a whole bunch of, of controversy. Matter of fact, like the now, now in New York, they don't like the New England Patriots. But CBS 2 in New York, they're going out and they're showing people about this. And they're saying, okay, what, what do you think about this? And like one guy says, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with this. And another person says, I think at a certain age, it's okay for, you know, your, your child to kiss their parents on the cheek or you can give them a hug, but not on the mouth and not for that long. Somebody else says, too long. It's like romantic long. Somebody else says, nope, I kiss my son on his lips. I have since day one. I would have no problem with my son kissing me like that. All right, let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Is there a certain age at which it just is odd or uncomfortable for a child not to kiss their parents, but to 
kiss them on the lips for, I don't know, more than just kind of a peck. Um, 414, I mean, do your kids do that? that, That's, I mean, I have to admit, you look at this and it's kind of, I I don't know. On the one hand, you'd like to see the fact that they're they're close. But on the other hand, this is an 11-year-old boy kissing the dad. Does it make a difference um, if it's a boy kissing mom on the lips versus kissing dad on the lips? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, Does this strike you as an unusual sort of thing? Is there kind of a rule of thumb for kids when they kiss their parents on on the lips? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. It's 116. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 119, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. I I admit this is one of these things, and, and here's the best way I can... I can describe this. I'm just going to give you my honest reaction to that. I'm watching this video, and I felt a little bit uncomfortable watching it. Now, I, I'm not, I don't think people are texting me saying, well, we don't think it was a romantic kiss. No, it, it, it wasn't. But maybe it's just because I didn't have that kind of relationship with my father that, you know, I would consider kissing him on the lips when I was 11 years old, and it's kind of this lingering sort of thing. You, you shake hands. Maybe you kiss him on the cheek. Maybe it, it's different between, you know, if, if it's a boy and mom. E- even so, I mean, you know, are 11-year-olds typically kissing moms on, on the lips for a, a lengthy period? And I get by lengthy, I mean at least a couple seconds. 414-799-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage talk and text line. I, uh, I think he's clearly a good parent. You clearly have a great relationship with the, the kids. But um, I, I don't know. When, when you've got the massage therapist and, and Brady urging the, the kid to give him a, a, better, a better kiss, I just think that's kind of a strange sort of thing. And I, I think, again, does it say anything about Tom Brady as a, as a father? Of course not. It's apparently a very good father. And obviously he's got this kind of great relationship. But you do look at it and you watch this video and you can see it by texting me the word KISS to 414-799-1620. And I understand why some people are perhaps at least a little bit uncomfortable with that. Then, of course, it raises the question about what, you know, is, is there is there an age where that that stops i mean is it high school is it college is it hey you know it's you know if you're 40 years old and you're still you know planting a big smack on dad's lips <laughs> um i guess people have to decide for themselves 121 jeff wagner wtmj when we come back president trump has them right where he wants them stick around 123, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Football fans are taking over the Twin Cities. The Super Bowl 52 approaches. How much spillover is coming into Wisconsin? Gene Miller takes a look. 551 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. See, Gru, I, I, I wish the Packers were there, but um, Super Bowl should not be in cold weather cities. I, I was I was watching some of the stuff on ESPN last night. People look like they're freezing. I, I mean, and I understand the game is inside, but you know you gotta so much of the Super Bowl. Like when I was at the Super Bowl in Dallas, and the weather was not great. They had this like freak ice storm and stuff. But but even so, it then it got up to like fifty or sixty degrees. So much of the stuff is outside, and so and and even even if 
you know, there, there's heat in bars or whatever. You've got to go. It's just so hard to get around when it's that cold and all. And so I, I guess if the Packers are only going to have a couple more Super Bowls in them, hopefully, I'm I'm willing to wait till it's in a warm weather spot. I candidly think that the Super Bowl should alternate between just a handful of cities like. I don't know, um, New Orleans would be a great one, and San Diego, and maybe one or two others, just so you know if you're going down there, you're going to have a great experience. So it's, I, I'm sure it's going to be a great game, and I know I'm going to tune in, especially to watch some of the commercials and all. But, um, boy, Minnesota, all those people that are going there, they probably got to be going, wow, would be nice to see something when it's not 10 degrees below zero. All right. In his State of the Union address, there are, there's at least one thing that I think President Trump did masterfully, masterfully. And I think he has backed his opponents into, he's really backed them into a box. And that is on the issue of immigration. Look, I, I've said for the longest time that, that our immigration policies are a mess. They've been a mess for a, a number of years. So one of the things that's a big deal with Democrats is what you do with these so-called dreamers, that the people who came into this country as kids illegally, but were brought by their parents, who have you know been here for you know their entire lives or most of their entire lives, who have been productive but don't have legal status, and you know, what do you do with them? This is also a big constituency for for Democrats. Because Democrats are out there seeing the the majority of these dreamers, not all of them, but the majority of these dreamers are are Hispanic. And I think the Democrats see this as a a huge opportunity. We can win over this voting block. And what we want to do is we want to get the dreamers. We want to give them the so-called path to citizenship because we think that they're going to vote for us. And right now, the estimates are there's about, what, 1.8 million dreamers. So this is a big deal on the agenda of Democrats. So there's a lot of Republicans, by the way, that I would be one of them, who has an issue with the path to citizenship. It's one thing if you want to say we're going to give you legal residency. It's another thing for citizenship because citizenship means voting rights and things like that. But that's what the Democrats want. They want this 1.8 million people, and they're not monolithic. It's not saying they're all going to vote for Democrats, but they figure there's a lot of them that are going to vote for Democrats. So this is a big issue for Democrats. What Trump says is, I will give you this. I will give you this if you want it. But... What I want is I want three things. First of all, I want I want money to build my wall. He said, because I think, you know, we, we need to crack down on this. I believe the wall. So he wants that. Number two, he says, I want a shift in immigration priorities. Right now, we, we have this emphasis on, on family reunification. Dad comes into the, the country gets here and then you know we want to make it easy to bring mom and bring the kids and bring brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and parents okay trump says i want to shift this from family reunification to a merit system where we're granting enter entry to workers with relatively high skills and so, so what I'm going to do is I think we need to change this policy, this reunification preferences. I just want to limit it to minor children and spouses. 
So this whole idea of chain migration, that we're giving you preferences to bring in your parents or your brothers or sisters, your adult uh, children, no, we're going to stop that. You get into this country legally, yeah, you can bring in your minor children, you can bring in your wife, but we're going to stop this extended sort of families, the chain migration. And then number three says, I want to end the diversity immigrant visa program. Um, There's this lottery system which makes little or no sense. I want to end that. But he says, here, uh, you know, you give me those three things, and I will give you, I will give you what you want. I will give you the path to citizenship for the dreamers. And you have the liberals and the New York Times and the Washington Post and all the Democrats who are up in arms saying this isn't constructive. My question is, why isn't this constructive? I mean, actually, now like I say, I I have some issues with the path to citizenship as opposed to legal residency. But let's say you have to give that up to get what you want. Is it unreasonable to say, all right, there's 1.8 million dreamers. We'll let them stay in the country. We'll figure out the path to citizenship. But I want the wall. I want limits to chain migration. And I want to change this uh, lottery that we have. In other words, I want to kind of control the legal immigrants who are coming into this country so we have people that are coming in that have skills that we need here. I think that is more than a fair deal. And I think the fact that Trump brought this up and called him out on it, if the Democrats aren't going to agree to it, it shows that they're not serious about immigration anyways. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, let's tee this up. Was the president's offer reasonable? I'll give you the dreamers, but I want the wall. I want a limit on chain migration, and I want to do away with the diversity lottery program or alter it. Isn't that more than fair? It's 134, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. A little bit of turmoil off the court and a good deal of success on it. Can the Bucks' current winning streak be directly tied to the firing of Jason Kidd? John McCure explores that question during Bucks Insiders. Be sure to tune in 345 this afternoon on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. John does an absolutely tremendous job. They, they call it, it's interesting, they call it the competency trap. And, and what it means is, it means, it ref, it's a term that refers to an organization that becomes so good at doing one thing that it can't learn to do anything else. The, the competency trap. You, you run a business, and you're, you're so good at what you do with that business. You dominate the market. This is it. You, you know, you are it. That, you know, you just can't think about, you know, what do we do besides this? And then what happens is that business that you dominate, let, let's say it falls out of demand or technology passes it. I'm talking about this because there's an interesting story. Um, you know, Kleenex is not Kleenex. Kleenex is a brand of tissue. But everybody, Kleenex has, has become like a generic term. You know, every, everybody says, give me a Kleenex when they mean give me a tissue. It, it's just Kleenex has dominated that so that when you think of when you think of a paper tissue, you know, to wipe your nose with or blow your nose in, you, you think of you think of Kleenex. One of the other things like that is, is Xerox. Um, you know, the, the copy thing, Xerox developed the 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 pop the process of copy machines in 1959 and and Xerox became so popular that back 
back in the day, you know, you would say, hey, do you have a Xerox machine there? That was it. I'm, I'm going to go Xerox some copies of things. You know, you didn't say, hey, I'm going to go to the copy machine. You say, give me the Xerox. Do you have a Xerox machine? It was just, it became ubiquitous. And when Xerox, you know, came into existence with the copy machines, what they did is they, they, they essentially, they put out, they, they put the, the companies that made the old, um, like, carbon paper, Boy, you're, you're really dating yourself. Grew, you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say carbon paper, do you? You do. Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah, it used to be that if you were sitting at a manual typewriter or an electric typewriter, but one of these actual typewriters, and you wanted to make a copy of the letter, what you would do is you would put the piece of paper in, and then you'd take a piece of the, the copy paper, and you'd put that, and then you'd put another sheet behind it. And then that copy paper would allow you to make a copy of the letter as you were typing it. Well, okay, once the copy machines came along, the Xerox machines came along, copy paper you didn't need it anymore. Because why, why would you bother going through this trouble of, you know, actually creating a second duplicate? You just take the machine, take your letter over to the Xerox machine, you would run it through, and, and you'd have it. So Xerox machine essentially put the carbon paper, the copy paper, out of out, those companies. They stopped making because nobody used it. I, I bring this up because Xerox which was once thought of as one of these you know, companies too big to fail. They'd been in business for 115 years. Um, yesterday, they announced that they were gone. They have been uh, taken over by Fujifilm Holdings of Japan, which now, of course, signals the end of a company that was once an American, really, corporate warehouse. Um and, and it's everybody that's looking at this, they're going to teach Xerox in business school for years and years as an example of, of, of an American monopoly technology business. They, they had it all that couldn't make the transition to a new generation of technology. They, you know, they just kicked butt when it came to copy machines. But, you know, nowadays... You know, who uses copy machines? I mean, you, 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 you know, between, you know, your iPhones and between your Google Docs and the clouds and between, you know, everybody's typing on their computers now. And you've got the wireless printers so you can print out as many copies as you want. Between all of that, people don't need Xerox anymore. Interesting. All right, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about immigration. Stick around. It's 139. 142, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Coming up in about eight minutes, Jeffrey Dahmer has been dead for, well, about 24 years now. What? 24 years. Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered in prison November 28th of 1994. But he is back in the news again, and in a way that several Milwaukee residents are not happy about. I'm going to tell you all about that in just a couple minutes, and we will discuss. So stick around. Dahmer, back in the news. But I I want to go back to what we were talking about a minute ago with this this whole immigration thing. Our immigration laws in this country are, are admittedly, you know, a mess. Immigration all over the map. And I understand that there's a number of conservatives who object to the idea of, of these dreamers being able to stay in the country. My only justification for this has been you have about 11 million people, give or take, who are in this country illegally. As a practical matter, logistically, you can't get rid of them all. 
You, you, you just you just can't. We don't have the resources. I've been trying to make this point for a long time. We don't have the immigration judges. You don't have the immigration agents. We don't have the resources. So what you need to do if you're going to reform immigration, I think, is first of all, you need additional border security. I'm not a fan of the wall because I'm not sure I'm convinced that works. But you need money put into tightening border security because it doesn't do any good if you're going to try to have immigration policies if you still have more people just pouring into this country illegally. So you've got to have border security, whether it's the wall or something else. So that's number one. Secondly, you have to figure out, of those 11 million people, let's say, that are in this country illegally, how are we going to prioritize what we do with the people that that are here? If you accept my premise, and please do, that we don't have the resources to get rid of 11 million people. All right, to me then, what you have to figure out is, I think it's easy. You concentrate on, of those 11 million people, you concentrate, at least initially, on the folks that are causing the problems or that aren't contributing members of American society. You concentrate on the people who are the criminals, who get out of jail, commit crimes, and then you know come back into this country after they're deported. You emphasize, you, know, you go after those types of individuals who are less desirable. Oh, you said they were undesirable. Well, if you're going to come into this country and you're going to deal drugs, you're going to commit crimes, yes, you are undesirable, period. Um, so you concentrate on those folks. The, the 1.8 million dreamers, that they would be way, way, way down the list because, again, they're not causing a problem. And the truth is, you know, many of those dreamers, together with a good portion of the rest of the 11 million, are people who are contributing to society. They're doing, in many cases, jobs that other people don't want to have. In many cases, they are, in fact, paying taxes and things like that. So to me, it's just you got you got to concentrate on this, but you have to figure out what you're going to do. And so what President Trump does, and what he did, I think, masterfully in the State of the Union, is he reaches out and says, okay, th- this is a big deal, particularly to immigration advocates and to the left. You want, you want to figure out a way to let these 1.8 million people stay. All right, I will give you that. And I will also, I'll even give you a path to citizenship for them. So Democrats... You view these 1.8 million dreamers as a huge potential voting block. I will even give you that. But what I want, again, I want a limit on the chain migration. I want money for enhanced border security. And I want to end the lottery where we just admit people into this country without any regard for their ability to contribute to the country. You, you put it like that, and I don't understand how any Democrat – can realistically get away with saying, no, I'm not going to support it. Because what does that mean? Does that mean, okay, you're not in favor of enhanced border security? Does it mean that you're really in favor of the chain migration instead of simply saying, okay, you come into this country, you can bring your wife, you can bring your dependent children, but that doesn't mean you need to bring, you know, you know, great uncle Frank into the country. Trump put the Democrats in a box. You might not be hearing this if you get your news from MSNBC or ABC or NBC or CBS. But this offer, rather than people just like turning up their nose at and say, oh, this was divisive and all these things, this was brilliant politics because he's giving something that is meaningful. 
That is the ability of dreamers to stay. And he's asking for things which I think the vast majority of this country, unless you are deeply into Trump derangement syndrome, something that the vast majority of the country ends up supporting. Tighter border security. Sure. I mean, who's going to be opposed to that, really, unless you're, you're really deep in the woods with the illegal alien type of stuff and other other restrictions which make a lot of sense. So I think masterfully done. If the Democrats turn their nose up on this and do not support it, what it tells you is they don't care about the dreamers. All they want is a political wedge issue. They don't care about the results. They just care about having the issue. And President Trump has kicked the ball squarely, you know, back into their court. What they do with it, we'll see. All right, coming up in just a couple minutes, I want to tell you the latest controversy involving Jeffrey Dahmer. Gone since 1994, but back in the news today. Stick around. It's 148. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 151. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. Um, We we talked about yesterday some things that Milwaukee was identified with, uh, Harley Davidson certainly being one of them. I think Miller Brewing, now Miller Coors being another. There's others. Unfortunately, on the flip side of that, there's some bad stuff that Milwaukee is identified with, and one is serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, Between 1978 and 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer was responsible for the the murder of of 17 people. Um, Many of them occurred in Milwaukee. His modus operandi is he would go out, he would find young men, um, he would bring them back to his various places. They would engage in sexual behavior. He would drug them, and then he would he would kill them. Um, it got particularly more notorious back in the t- day because there was a, a situation, and this was when he was living, you know, downtown M- Milwaukee, where um, police actually happened upon him when he was with one of his his victims. And he ended up talking his way out of it. And they just kind of, you know, the police kind of wrote it off as a, quote, unquote, lover's spat or, or whatever. And they let him go and he ended up killing the guy. So um, credibly notorious. He was arrested in July of 1991. He was convicted and ultimately was killed in 1994 um, in prison. OK, so that's the Jeffrey Dahmer history. Well, what's getting the controversy is. There, there's a group of people who operate what they call the the Dahmer tour. Now, there is an interest in seeing things. If you go to New York, it's not uncommon for people to sign up on one of the bus tours, and they take you around. They show you sites of of New York. Um, there are some tours that have revolved around television shows. For example, if you go to New York and New Jersey, there's a very popular tour involving the old HBO show, The Sopranos. And what it does, you get on the bus, and it's a day-long tour, and it takes you to various places where the show was filmed. Hey, this is the strip club that was the bada-bing, and this is that and the other. Um, Seinfeld is another one. There's a Seinfeld tour where you take it, and they take you to the real-life places where the, the scenes were. Hey, this is the this is where the soup Nazis thing was, and this is this is where the cafe was. It's not monks, but this is you know this is where it is. They take you to those places. You can see it. If you go to Albuquerque, 
for why you want to go to Albuquerque, I don't know. But if you were to go to Albuquerque, you know, they have the Breaking Bad tour. That's where the TV show Breaking Bad was set. And, you know, they'll, they'll take you around and they'll show you, hey, this is the shopping mall where, you know, Saul's Law Office was. And you can go and you can see the house that they used uh, where the where Walter White le- lived and things like that. So that you, you can see these things. And there's an interest. Well, it's one thing to go on, you know, a walking tour or a bus tour to see where they film The Sopranos or where they film Breaking Bad. Well, okay, there is what they call the Dahmer Tour, and um, it's it's back. Here's the way Channel 6 reports it. A controversial Jeffrey Dahmer walking tour has stirred up emotions again thanks to new Facebook ads. And um, the Facebook ads, essentially, it's, it's touting what they end up calling the, the Cream City Cannibal Tours. Um named after, of course, Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, a sponsored ad has been showing up on Facebook um, feeds with an image of a shirt representing a number of the number of Dahmer's victims. It says 17. Um, they're announcing, heads up, they're announcing the return of the Cream City Cannibal Tour in March. Again, 17, victim, 17 victims. And what they do <clears throat> on this tour is they go to a number of the the sites where I don't know Dahmer met some of his victims, or you know we're going to take this and this is the this is the, they leveled where the apartment building where he used to live, but they you know you know live, leveled this building. This is where this is the apartment where he was, and this is the sidewalk you know where he had the encounter with the cops. All those different types of things. A number of people who knew some of Dahmer's victims or just have perhaps better taste than others are absolutely appalled. They say this is terrible. These ads and this tour are sensationalizing one of Milwaukee's greatest tragedies. And here we have somebody who is out there trying to exploit this. The tour's owner says it's been a smashing success. He said, you know, this there's nothing wrong with this. Um, you know, we we're this is actually informational. Uh, you know, people use this to track serial killers and things like that. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't know that there's anything you can do to stop somebody who who wants to do this as his business. You know? I mean, it's a free country. It's not illegal to say, hey, I'm going to run this tour, and I'm going to take you to all these various locations. Having said that, look, I, I understand. Maybe if I was in New York, I'm a fan of The Sopranos. Maybe I'd like to see you know, where they filmed some of the stuff. Maybe the Seinfeld thing. Maybe the Breaking Bad thing. But this isn't Seinfeld or Sopranos or Breaking Bad. This is, this is Jeffrey Dahmer. And I guess I think... That even though, as we often say on this program, you might have a right to do something, I don't think this is the right thing to do. And I guess I am appalled that people would pay money to go on to something, a tour like this. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We've just got a couple minutes in this hour. But would you drop a dime, a dime to go on to one of these tours where you have somebody who is clearly the tour operator's are exploiting a very, in my opinion at least, exploiting something that, you know, in Milwaukee we should not be proud of at at all. They're trying to make money off of 
people who were murdered by Jeffrey Dahmer. There is no educational value to this. This is purely purient interest, nothing else. And I don't think that the city should be saying, you know, we're not going to let you do it. I mean, if somebody wants to take a walking tour, I think they have a right to do it. But if you do, I think you should just take a shower afterwards. I mean... Really, is there no limit? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, you ever, I'm not saying that the police should stop them from doing it, but who would pay money? What sort of sick person would pay money to go on to something like this? Linda in Fond du Lac. Linda, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. I just think it's ridiculous. This world is so sad right now. We're going through so much grief and division, and I just, I just think it's just terrible that they're trying to... Do, do something like that that's so tragic. Well, it, 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 it's family. so exploitive. Yeah, I mean, right, how do you feel, you know, if you're one of the fa- surviving family members of one of this animal's victims and you know somebody's making money by taking the tour to taking tourists to, oh, this is the street corner where, you know, so-and-so, where he met so-and-so, or this is where the bar used to be, where he, you know, drug particular people. I mean, how, God, how, how could these victims feel? How do the people that run this tour live with themselves? I don't know. It's sick. It really is. We need some good things in our life, some happy things. Well, That's right. I mean, again, again, I guess it's anything to make a buck. And obviously, the reason, part of the reason they do this is because there are people who are willing to go on it. They're apparently saying for their first round of tours in March, you know, already they're saying, you know, one is sold out. Really, it's sold out. I mean, you want to talk about God's way of telling you you have too darn much money. If that's if you could spend money to go on a Jeffrey Dahmer Cream City Cannibal Tour. 159, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Yeah. 208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. Drew, who's producing the show today and always, do you think people understand what this, this whole memo thing in Washington is about? You're shrugging your shoulders. Yeah, no. Not. And the, you know, what, what exactly is going on here, and why is the FBI, and what, why does Trump care about this, and what's the brouhaha? All right, let me, let me, try, to, let me try to simplify it. This is going to be kind of a Cliff's Notes for people who are, are keeping track of this. As a general rule, you cannot wiretap. People, that is, listen to people's phone conversations unless you have a showing. You know, you, you know, I, I did wiretaps. I, there was a point in time in my life where I, over the course of my life, back in another life, I think I probably maybe 15 or 20 wiretaps in drug dealer cases. And, and what you have to do is you have to build your, your case for why you need to have the wiretap. And, um, it, back in the day, I don't know how, it's probably still the same way, like you could not, as an individual U.S. attorney's office, you couldn't decide that you're going to go do the wiretap. You had to get permission from Washington before you could do the wiretap. And then once you got permission, you would have to put together the package with all the showing probable cause as to why you needed to do this wiretap. And you used to have to take it in front of a federal judge, and the federal judge would review it. And then there were all sorts of limitations on what you could do and what you couldn't do, how long you could listen to a phone call um, because if it was a non-pertinent call, I mean, it's one thing if it's two known drug dealers talking to each other. It's another thing if you've got uh, the suspected drug dealer who's talking to his grandmother about something. You're not supposed to listen to that. So there's all these different rules and regulations because eavesdropping on people is such an intrusion. 
right? Well, when I used to do it, you used to go to federal judges. Um, there's another way you can get wiretaps, and there's a special, it's called a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, FISC, and this is... This is an agency that sort of handles national security type of stuff, super, super secret things, you know, trying to keep track of spies and trying to keep track of are there plots to, again, from foreign foreign nationals to come in and overthrow the government, you know, that, that type of stuff. It's a super secret type of thing. Well, what happened is um, in October of 2016, the FBI – and Justice Department officials go to one of these courts and they ask for permission to wiretap um, a guy named Claire Carter Page. Carter Page was a campaign advisor for for Donald Trump. OK, um, Carter Page had been on like radar screens. Um, he was a former Moscow based investment banker and he'd been on radar screens for of the authorities for for years he had visited moscow in july of 2016 he was preparing to return there in december when investigators obtained the warrant so they're, they're looking at him all right you might say okay well what's the he's a campaign advisor but what's the big deal well apparently what happened, and we all know this, and we, we know this by kind of secondhand stuff that's out there. The information, at least some of the information that was used to get the warrant to show the probable cause, um, was, was information that came from this former British intelligence officer, Christopher Steele. And, and Steele was the guy hired by the Democrats to dig up dirt he's like a retired he's a, like a former spook himself and he was hired by democrats to dig up dirt on trump and others and so that's kind of what he did he put together the, this dossier much of which much of which was absurd you know much of which was uh, it was either made up or it was false or whatever and he had been paid it was essentially opposition research. So he goes and he peddles this to the FBI. The allegations are that the FBI then, you know, in trying to get this warrant on Carter Page, they, they took all this bad information, this paid for, this bought information, and they blended it into the warrant and they used it in part to get the wiretap, right? So that, that's what the, this issue involves. Now, without having seen the wiretap affidavit, I don't know how much of that that they, they used was, how much of it? Was it 5%? Was it 10%? Was it 50%? How much of this bad information did they use in an effort to get the wiretap? And I, I don't know that. Well, this memo that you hear everybody talking about is a, a three-and-a-half-page memo that was prepared by Republican staff members on the House Intelligence Committee. And what this does is it summarizes what was in the warrant application, and apparently it, it summarizes how how the FBI went about getting the information that was obtained and contained in, in the warrant. And the implication, again, I haven't seen it, but it apparently paints the FBI in a very, very bad light. 
Um, it makes it look like they used misleading information. They didn't vet th- this guy. They just put this stuff there in an attempt to try to get this warrant on a guy who w- that was going to potentially implicate people who were you know in the middle of a political campaign. So um, again, people who've read this memo say it says that officials from the FBI and the Justice Department were not forthcoming to the judge in seeking the, the warrant. All right. So it makes them look bad. The FBI, on the one hand, obviously doesn't want to be made to publicly look bad. That's that's one way of looking at it. They, they just they, they don't want to be called out. Also, they however, apparently this memo does talk about some of the investigative techniques and th- some of the things that you do to try to, you know, get the probable cause that you present, not just in this case, but in other cases. And the FBI is apparently arguing, don't release this, because what it will do is it will make public not just the fact that it makes us look bad, but also it will make public some of the investigative techniques that we use and things like that, and it will make it harder for us to do our job moving forward. Democrats on this committee also say that they think this memo is misleading, that it doesn't present enough of the other side. So that's where we are right now. The president says, and the president ultimately gets to decide whether he's going to release it or not. The president says he will release it. There was this technical thing that apparently that after the committee, the the House committee voted to release it, they made some, what I think is some minor technical changes based on concerns the FBI had. So now they have to vote again on releasing the modified memo. But, But that's kind of where we are. All right, with that backdrop, 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So, again, I don't know what conclusions we can ultimately draw from this because I haven't seen the memo. And I don't know, again, how much of the bad information was relied on in order to get the warrants or things like that. But it does apparently make the FBI look sloppy and bad. It also, I will assume, does disclose certain ways that they go about gathering information to get these warrants. So balancing that, should this be released? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should it be released? Or is this something that, hey, all you've got is the Trump administration trying to, you know, throw, you know, Again, a smokescreen and divert people from the idea of whether it was Russian collusion or not. Should the memo be released? I'll tell you where I come down on this, but I'm curious as to how you feel about it. And that's the simplest way I can explain it. And I understand there's kind of complexities and all, but that's kind of the simple explanation of what's going on. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. We discuss next. It's two seventeen. This is Jeff Wagner. It's two twenty. Jeff Wagner. WTMJ four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I guess I am of two minds on this particular issue. Um, I'm not sure that, I guess I'm not sure that this memo is going to be the smoking gun that the Trump administration thinks it is with regard to, oh, um, you know, this is a corrupt investigation. At the same time, though, I, I think... These allegations that, oh, my goodness, if you put these investigative techniques out there, this is going to destroy our intelligence gathering thing. I find that to be an overstatement as well. I mean, government agencies have been using that for decades. And typically, you know, when it's the liberals 
when it's the liberals that want to have something released, that argument doesn't get any sort of traction at all. No, of course we have to release this. Of course we have to release that. The public has a right to know. Now when the shoe is on the foot, on the other foot, yeah, well, maybe let, let's go a little bit slow with this. Here, here's what I, here's what I think should happen. I, I think that given all the controversy involving this, and all the questions and all the stuff that we still don't know about this dossier and, you know, what they did. And I think the public has a right to know, you know, was the FBI guppied? You know, was this a sloppy sort of situation? Did they get this information and did they run with it without vetting it? You know, were they played by people who were trying to undermine the Trump campaign? I think you have the right to know it. Now, again, I'm not sure that this is necessarily going to say all that, because when you're putting together a search warrant, and again, I haven't seen this one, but when you're putting together a search warrant, it's highly unusual, particularly in a complex sort of situation, that all your probable cause is going to come from one source. By that, by, by that, what I mean is, if you throw out all the stuff that came from this, you know, spook who was peddling the stuff, um, if you throw that all out, is there still a basis for the warrant? Um, and I, I think. You know, my guess is that's probably where this is going to end up. But nevertheless, I think the public has the right to know. And I do think, quite candidly, that the FBI's protests are a little bit much. I think what the FBI is concerned about, it's less about, hey, we're going to give away investigative techniques. And it's more about, we got played. And, you know, we didn't vet this character as much as we should. And we didn't tell the judge that this was, you know, paid information that was of dubious accuracy. You know, we presented it as if it were a fact when in turn it really probably wasn't. I think there's a lot of that stuff going on. So, again, I'm not sure that this is the smoking gun, but this the world is going to end if we release it. I don't buy that at all. And I think given everything that's there, you know, the public does, in fact, have a right to know, especially since it was this process, the getting the wiretap that has now started everything, which leads us to a special prosecutor whose investigation appears to be going on and on. On and on and on. 223, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It must be TV sweeps. I used to know this, but it must be TV sweeps because a lot of the different TV stations now they, they're rolling out at 10 o'clock, they're rolling out some of their big investigative reports and stuff. And my old friend, by that I mean she's not old, but we have been friends for a long period of time. My old friend Courtney Garish on today's TMJ4 had a really interesting piece on on residency rules. It used to be that in the city of Milwaukee, you had to live in the city of Milwaukee if you wanted to be an employee. Uh, that law changed more than four years ago. And now what you see is you have a, a number of city employees who have been moving out. Let me just share with you a portion of the story that she reported, and it's also available on the Today's TMJ4 website. New numbers on how many city employees have moved out of Milwaukee since the law changed more than four years ago. A Milwaukee alderman calls it troubling for the city, especially with the biggest, biggest numbers being in public safety. About 30% of police officers and 35% of firefighters live outside the city. Some of those are in higher-ranking spots in the departments. The police unions take on the numbers. Nothing um, 
nothing about the bigger picture has changed. Police officers and firefighters um, used to have to live in the city. Since 2013, there's been a slow trickle out of Milwaukee. A total of 806 officers and firefighters are now living in other communities. Um, the officer says, you know, he's just, you know, he's, he's happy to do it. Um, he says he doesn't think where he lives affects his ability to do his job or know his district. He says, I think it makes me motivated to learn it better. Um, move outs by year, uh, 85 in 2013, 260 in 2014, 225 in um, 2017. One of the Milwaukee aldermen says that last year almost 1,500 employees are now living outside of Milwaukee. That's about one in every four people. Close to 900 have moved since the residency requirement was lifted, and they see it's starting as a trend. All right, so you, you definitely have cops and firefighters in particular who are apparently you know, moving out of, of the city. I want to open up the phone lines because this is something we've talked about before, but now you're starting to look at the numbers. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do you buy the argument that by living outside the city, if you've got a firefighter or a police officer that lives in Bayside or in Mequon or in, I don't know, Brookfield or in South Milwaukee, do you believe that they are not able to properly service the community that they end up working for? Has this rule, essentially eliminating residency, has this hurt the city? Does the state legislature need to take another look at it, or is this just a matter of employee freedom? And and if you're a cop, can you be just as good a cop if you're assigned to, I don't know, the south side of Milwaukee or downtown Milwaukee? Can you be just as good a cop if you're living on the if you were living on the northwest side of Milwaukee, or if instead you're living three or four blocks over in, you know, Waukesha or Washington County. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Very interesting report on today's TMJ4. Um, and once these residency rules were gone, you do have more and more fire and police officers who are leaving. All right, is that the end of the world? Has that been a bad thing? The mayor predicted that this would decimate the city. I don't think that's happened. But some aldermen are concerned that it's affecting the quality of and the response times and things like that. Does that have any merit? 414-799-1620. Should we have residency rules? And was it a mistake mistake to do away with them? I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss in just a moment or two. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, 414-799-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Two thirty-five. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Let's start with Linda in Wauwatosa. Linda, you're first. Residency Hi, rules. Hi. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think it makes any difference. If we had a volunteer fire department, then yes, where the firefighter lives would be of concern. But the fact is, is that in the city of Milwaukee, they work a twenty-four hour shift, so they are at the firehouse for a solid twenty-four hours. Mm-hmm. So. Right. The response time issue, I think, is that's a non-issue. And I think by eliminating the residency rule, you are broadening the pool of applicants that are applying for the jobs, and I think that it will actually improve the quality of the employees. 
Well, right. The, the response time, you're, you're right, is kind of a – that's kind of a red herring. I'm, I'm kind of looking at where – I think the the most city employees, not just fire and police, most city employees, they move to Franklin or they move to Greenfield or Oak Creek or New Berlin. So, I mean, it's not oh, like they're – Right. It's not like they're halfway around the state or, or anything like that. I guess the argument, though, might be – let's say you're a police officer. If you, you, you live in Franklin or you live in Oak Creek – does that mean you don't know the neighborhood, that the district that you're assigned to? Is there any truth to that? I don't think so. I mean, my brother was a heavy equipment operator for the city of Milwaukee, firefighters, um, fire department for over 30 years. And, I mean, they move around. They work at different right. stations. You have to learn the streets and the city, whatever station you are, um, yeah. you're, you're stationed at. So. It doesn't really matter where you live. You have to learn the area where you're working. Yeah, I see. I agree with you, Linda. I mean, I mean, the argument I always made is, let's say, I mean, lots of police and, and firefighters live when, before the residency rules ended. They lived in the extreme northwest part of the city. You know that. So, I mean, okay, if you're in the extreme northwest part of the city and you're assigned to the the near south side, for example, actually. If you're living in, I don't know, New Berlin or Oak Creek or West Dallas, you might actually be closer geographically to where you're assigned. Yet, to me, where you live doesn't really say anything. It's not like you're living, you're required to live in the community three blocks away from where it is that you work. Exactly. And like I say, if it was a, if it was a volunteer fire department, then yes, response time would be an issue. But that's not what we currently have. Thanks to call 414-799-1620. Now, there are other arguable reasons why, why you do, why doing away with residency rules might be a bad thing. Again, Tom Barrett predicted that the sky was going to fall. I don't think that the sky has fallen. But let's talk to Freddie in Milwaukee. Freddie, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. This is Freddie. Yes, sir. Yeah, listen, last week when there, we were talking about the government, I mean, the state governor's budget, you know, surplus, I, I called in and I said, well, why can't they supplement the shortage of police officers we have and to keep our fire stations open? And you said, well, wait a minute, that's state money that has nothing to do with the municipalities. Well, the city of Milwaukee taxes payers, they pay for the police protection, Mm -hmm. and they pay for the fire protection. So they should have the right in the municipality to make the rules of where the employees work. Mm -hmm. Give me me your best argument for a residency rule. The best argument? Well, I tell you, if you're on standby and you live, in Franklin, or you live in Oak Creek, or if you live somewhere else, and you have your telephone number with speed dial, you know, with number saying on there, and just say, hey, listen, I don't want to go to work. You know what I mean? And this way here, if you're living in a city of Milwaukee, you're going to have a little bit more, uh, how can I say, morale to say, hey, listen, this is my city. i got to go here. You know what I mean? Yeah, thanks. I, I'm not sure I do, Freddie. I mean, thanks. I mean, I, I first of all, I, I think the response time thing is, is a red herring. I mean, if you're on call, then you're on call, and I, I think the city has every right to say, okay, if, if you're on call, you know, 
we or for those situations, you have you have to be within thirty minutes of your workplace if you're on call. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. But like I say, you could even before the residency rules, depending on where you worked, you, you could live further away in the city of Milwaukee from where you work than if you didn't live in the city of Milwaukee. South Milwaukee, arguably, for somebody who works on the far south side, would be closer than somebody who lived on the northwest side in the city. Um, now, as to the argument, and this is, you know, I mean, I've, I've heard this this made, the argument being that if you if you want to be connected and involved in the community, you need to live in that community. And I, I understand why, you know, that, that kind of has an appeal, I guess, in, in one respect. But here's the truth of the matter. Before before the state law, the vast majority, almost all of communities around the state did not have residency rules. And I guess, does it, I mean, do you mean to tell me that, for example, somebody who's a, uh, you know, somebody who's a, a police officer in Appleton, I, I'm just using that as an example. I don't know if Appleton has had a residency rule or not. But if, if you're a police officer in Sheboygan or in Appleton and you live in one of the surrounding communities, that means that you don't have as much of a connection. Like I say, most areas did not have residency rules. And I didn't hear this argument that the officers, uh, you know, didn't care and that they weren't interested. I, I just I think that does a huge disservice to the officers. Candidly, the best argument was the one that Barrett used to make, where essentially it was the argument in favor of holding city employees hostage. The argument being, if somebody leaves, all right, that means that you're going to have a vacant house. If you're working in the city of Milwaukee, you should be contributing to our, our tax base. My point about that was always the notion that um, – was always the notion that look, you know, people aren't going to bail on their houses. I mean, what's going to end up happening is that people you're, you're not you're not going to move out. If you own a house in Milwaukee, you're not just oh my gosh, the residency rule is over. I'm going to just you know leave my house, which is probably for most people their principal asset. Leave it vacant, move. You're going to sell it to somebody else. So I, I just I didn't believe that this would be the economic. Uh, destruction of, of the city, and I think that that's kind of played out. That said, I mean, here's the other bottom line, and, and here's where the aldermen who don't like this and the mayor should really be concerned with. The, with Why is it that the public employees want to leave? I mean, you, you want, as a general rule, you want to be close to where you work, but why is it that so many cops or firefighters or other people in the city of Milwaukee, once you lose that residency rule, is it why is it that so many want to get out of the city? Now, maybe, maybe instead of saying, oh, we need laws or we should have had these laws that artificially force people to live within the boundaries of the city, maybe you should be figuring out, gee, why is it that people are leaving and, and what is it that we could be doing to make it more desirable for people to live here? I mean, could it be getting control of, of crime so that, you know, every time you, I don't know, walk out, your wife walks out to the grocery store at 4.30 in the afternoon or stops at a gas station and tries to put gas in her car, that she doesn't have to worry about being carjacked? Well, okay, maybe that would be a factor. Maybe, you know, it might be, gee, and again, I understand that the mayor isn't in charge of MPS, but maybe, you know, gee, um, I've got people have kids. They want to move to the suburbs because there's a better educational system than MPS. Maybe you could deal with MPS. Just saying. Let's talk to Conrad in Franklin. Conrad, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, how you doing, Jeff? What do you think? 
Well, I think it's just a bunch of BS. Uh, I was telling you, Screener, my wife has done surgery for 40 years at one of the hospitals in Milwaukee. And uh, she's been a surgical nurse, and she's on call a lot. Well, we have to live like a half hour from the hospital. Yeah, she, right, she, she, right. When she's on call, she is right. responsible for being there within X amount of minutes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And in 40 years, it's never been a problem. Uh, and what I'm thinking is off the top of my head, so a uh, police officer is stationed at a far south side police station. Say he lives on the north side of Milwaukee. I got news for you. It's going to take a lot more than a half yeah. hour to get to the other side of town. Yeah, it, right, exactly. The, the, the living, I mean, Milwaukee is, is big enough geographically right. that, right, the, the, that, that response time argument to me has just never made any sense. And it is perfectly reasonable. I mean, you're, I think it's reasonable for them to say to your wife, you can live wherever you want, but on those nights that you're on call, you got to be around, you're on 30 minute notice. And if you live outside that area, well, you got to figure it out. <laughs> you know, go stay right. with your right. sister or whatever, however you do it, sure. We actually have a friend that lives in Burlington that works with my wife for 20-some years. When she's on call, she actually stays overnight by her kid's house. Yeah. It, it, it's it, not a big deal. Right. You, 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 right. You, you adapt and you work it out. Thanks for the call, Conrad. I mean, the alternative is let, let's hold people prisoner. Okay, here's the note. Jeff, I believe a person should live wherever they want to. If people work in Milwaukee, chances are they realize that living in Milwaukee is not a safe place to live. Schools are better in other towns and cities for their children. See, here's the other thing. I think by allowing people to live where they want to live, again, keep in mind, that the, these residency rules, there were only a handful of communities that had them. A- and all the other communities that didn't have residency rules seemed to me to get along pretty well. Um, I, I think by requiring, by, by requiring, by allowing people to live where they want, first of all, I think you make it easier to attract and retain employees. Let's take teaching, for example. You have a, you have a young teacher. Um, you know, gets out, want, just you know, wants to teach, can really make a difference. Goes to work at an MPS school, and then you know she ends up getting married, and um, her husband lives in I don't know Grafton, runs the family business in Grafton. Well, I mean, he's not going to move to the city of Milwaukee. She wants to move there. Or another situation: you have a young couple at the beginning. They start off. They love downtown. They love the excitement of downtown Milwaukee, etc. They both work for the city. Well, they end up getting married. They have a kid. They want a bigger lawn. They're concerned about schools, and so they decide, hey, you know, we we want to go out to the suburbs. Should it really cost them their job? And is that good for the city if you lose qualified people because you're forcing them to make that? change. I do think it's fair to say if you're on call, you have to be able to show up in X amount of time. Um, but th- this idea that we, we want to hold you prisoner, I just don't think, I've never thought that that's a good idea for public policy. Uh, the other issue I acknowledge is whether this is a local control thing. Should Milwaukee have been able to do that or should the state have had the right to come in and make the state law? That's a different story. But I think residency rules in general are way outmoded. They're bad. I appreciate that people are leaving, but that to me says perhaps more about what's going on in Milwaukee than it does about the people. 247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 249, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Just got a couple minutes before I have to turn it over to John and Greg and Melissa. But my, my basic premise here is it's never the same. Drew, who's producing the show, were you a House of Cards fan? Did you, 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 you didn't watch House of Cards. Now, I mean, I, I actually, I watched House of Cards was the 
the Kevin Spacey was the star of it. It was based on a British miniseries, a British thing that ran for three years, um, a kind of a miniseries that was really, really good. And the, the U.S. version took that British miniseries and kind of brought it here. And Kevin Spacey was the star, and he played this conniving congressman who sort of works his way up the, the ladder and ultimately becomes president. I thought the first year was pretty good. I thought the second year was okay. And then it, it lost me. Okay, it, it just it just lost me. But still, a lot of people, a lot of people like it. Everybody knows about Kevin Spacey now. And Kevin Spacey was the show uh, Kevin Spacey, of course, disgraced now. It turns out that for three decades or whatever, he's been um, molesting or harassing male co-stars and actors and things like that. So Kevin Spacey is now completely, totally persona non grata. House of Cards was in production, getting ready to start production for what was going to be its final season. And when this whole story broke, they suspended the production and then have made the decision, okay, we're going to come back, we're going to wrap up this show, but we're going to do it without Kevin Spacey. We'll bring in some new people and we'll focus on the other lead character, Robin Wright, um, who was perhaps best known for The Princess Bride. She was the star of The Princess Bride. But Robin Wright, who's a, just a beautiful woman and a great, great actress, um, will focus on on her. They don't know how they're going to – they won't say how they're writing Kevin Spacey out, but they are writing Kevin Spacey out. Um, all right, we've only got a couple minutes. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you are a House of Cards fan, are you glad to see they're doing this? Or should they have just ended the show? And, and the reason I say this is because as somebody who, you know, it, I, I, if you listen to my pop culture corner, you know I love TV. I, I, I watch these TV shows. There's actually too much good TV that's out there to watch nowadays. But one of my big complaints about TV shows is that they last too long, that they have a certain shelf life. And then what happens in general is um, that they start repeating themselves in plots or what happens is, you know, key actors end up leaving and they try to kind of muddle on without them. And it's never the same. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I can, can't tell you how many different TV shows that I, I've seen that I just thought lasted way too long. For all those different reasons, they just ran out of different plots, so they started recycling. That's what happened to, I, I think, The Sopranos. I mean, a great show, but I think they just kind of ran out of ideas. And so the plot line in the fifth season was really the same plot line they had in the second season, just kind of recycled. Or you have the big actors that start leaving. I can't picture that show without the centerpiece of the show, which is Kevin Spacey. Apparently, though, because... There's so much money involved in the thing um, because they still think they can squeeze a little bit of dough out of the franchise that what they're willing to do is they're going to willing to come back and they kind of roll with it. I would always much rather see TV shows go out, but before before they kind of get ugly, before everybody leaves. So you don't get the idea that it's just a couple people hanging on trying to make a, a buck. And I think that's what you're starting to see here. Like I say, I lost interest in House of Cards after about the second year because it just it just got so incredibly bizarre and things like that. And I like the original one. But, you know, this new version and again I like Robin I like Robin um Robin Wright. Um I, I just I do. I think she's a great actress. But at the same time, 
The show was built around them. Kevin Spacey was the star. I don't have a problem with dumping Kevin Spacey because, again, he's just kind of persona non grata. But at the same time, maybe that means you just end the entire show. I mean, it's kind of like trying to continue the Andy Griffith show after Andy Griffith leaves. Now, I understand you could say it went downhill after Don Knotts left, but this is, I mean, Kevin Spacey was to this show what Andy Griffith was to the Andy Griffith show. Imagine trying to leave. What do you get? Mayberry RFD, and it just lasts a year. They should have just let it die. It's kind of like Gilligan's Island after Gilligan got rescued. It just doesn't make any sense. All right. When we come back, we'll find out what the gang has on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 2.55.